Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor. Happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. This is a special episode of Dangerous Wisdom because it brings together a philosopher and a priestess. And I'm giving this an introduction recorded separately from the actual dialogue precisely because of the specialness of this encounter, as well as the ways my old friend Hermes got involved. I'll explain that in a moment. Let me explain in general before I turn over our adventure to the priestess. As you will hear in a few minutes, philosophers in my lineage have a special connection with priestesses, and that is especially because Socrates was initiated by a priestess, initiated into the mysteries of wisdom, love, and beauty. And so there's something really sacred about that image of the philosopher and the priestess, and there's a kind of archetypal magic that can come alive when philosophers encounter priestesses, just as when yogis encounter dakinis. And I trusted that archetypal energy in approaching our priestess for an interview. I didn't know Amadora. I just came across her by some measure of synchronicity. I didn't know a whole lot about her work. I wasn't sure how our dialogue would even go. Again, I was just kind of trusting the archetypal resonance. And I'm happy to say that this philosopher met a truly delightful person, a really good-hearted person who's had some very interesting experiences. It was a, a genuine pleasure to make a new friend and to discuss matters of dangerous wisdom with her. It was a, a really enjoyable philosophical dialogue, and it's wonderful to share it with you. Now, there's a little more to the story, though, part of the reason for our special introduction, not just to say nice things about the priestess I met. But after our dialogue, I stepped outside because I heard the ravens. In fact, I hear them now, too, but usually the male raven is much more comfortable with me. Uh, ravens tend to pair for life, and so the pair were both sitting outside on the deck, and uh, when I asked to make portraits of them, usually he's fine, she is not. And if the camera even accidentally points in her direction too strongly, it's one thing if, if he's next to her and the camera's clearly focused on him, she'll put up with it. Uh, but that's about it. So she's usually out of focus in uh, the few images that I've taken of the pair. And so this time I asked again, you know, and I explained that I was just on this call with a nice priestess and uh, w wouldn't you like to have a picture for her? And so she was okay with it. So I was able to make a picture with her in focus and with him out of focus, which I just got a kick out of that. I enjoyed it, even though I love them both. It was just nice that she was willing to do that. And so then I went back inside and I emailed uh, the, a couple of the images to Amadora. And I was about to close the audio file from this dialogue, the audio file you're about to hear, but I noticed that the file looked a bit odd. And normally I don't listen to these recordings whenever I make them. It doesn't matter if it's an interview or just myself. I usually don't re listen to anything. I just release it, unless there's something majorly wrong, like if, you know, 
the internet connection shut off and we have to start start and re- restart or something. Okay, major thing, then I'll go back. But I don't usually listen. But I did this time because something looked funny. And when I played it back, I found that the philosopher's voice sounded quite awful. It was as if I had called into the podcast on a bad cell connection. And Hermes, or Mercury, had just gone retrograde. So it seemed like a, a particularly funny hermetic joke. I thought Hermes was just having a grand time with me. But then part of what made it so funny was how it echoed the photos I had just taken. The priestess in this recording, the female in this recording, sounds much more in focus, even though she was the one calling in, and the philosopher sounds pretty out of focus, even though he was sitting at a decent microphone. And you can still understand what the philosopher says in this dialogue, but I love the way it puts the priestess more in focus. And so I know you are, I'm asking a little bit of indulgence because you're used to hearing a very clear recording uh, of my voice, but it, it's still, you can understand it, and the, it's, the priestess is worth listening to, so it's really nice that I, I get fuzzed out a little bit. Not so much that, that you, you will be confused. I think you'll be fine. But among other things, Amadora shares an epic dream. So she, has a, a nice, she gives us a nice long story that I think you'll enjoy. And in general, if you enjoy this dialogue even half as much as I did, you'll be glad you listened. Now, in a further ironic twist, as if we didn't have enough twists in this story, after I introduced Amador, she very kindly complimented me on my voice. And so it seemed important to at least record another introduction, especially if there's anybody who hasn't listened before and, th- and thinks to themselves, really, what? That doesn't sound good. Um, but Or if you're just used to this voice, then you're, you're about to lose it, which is good. It's the practice of impermanence. You're going to lose everything. I'm going to lose this voice too. And uh, so there's not much I can do to fix it either. I don't have fancy software that's going to make this sound any better. So I wanted to at least have a nice sounding introduction. And then you'll hear our dialogue begin and you will hear how funny I sound. Now one more thing. Uh, this dialogue was recorded a little while ago, and those ravens, after I took those photos, the female disappeared for a little while. And I knew that it wasn't just the camera. I mean, it wasn't like the next day she disappeared, but it wasn't long after that that she vanished, and I didn't think anything had happened to her. I suspected that uh, she had babies, and she did. For a short time, there were five ravens here, which is a lot of raven, if you <laughs> have lived close to them. And uh, three kids who really like to say a lot. They have a lot to say when they're young. And the family never gathered for one group photo. It's a lot of kids, and they're skittish naturally. They're even more skittish than their parents. But I will at least try and put a photo of the raven pair on the website so you can see the same photo that I sent to Amadora, if you want to. If you don't see it there, email me a reminder, because it's one thing for me to say this now. It's another for me to remember to put the image up there on the site. Okay, so here's our real introduction. Eden Amadora is a speaker, coach, mentor, and spiritual guide. She's a featured author in The New Feminine Evolutionary, Sacred Body Wisdom and Divine Reunion. She is an ordained 13-moon priestess 
a divine feminine mystery school teacher, an archetypal channel, a mystic, and a muse. Eden serves the great awakening on earth by holding a clear, compassionate mirror for all, uplifting, inspiring, and supporting us to return to the center of our essence beauty, to fully embrace ourselves as nothing less than unique and precious embodiments of the divine. This is the radiant heart of her successful trainings. Her clients acknowledge and praise her as one of the most extraordinary facilitators in the arenas of archetypal initiations, soulful embodiment, and sacred heart awakening. She's highly regarded as a pure and seasoned presence of transforming love and raises a uniquely effective call to awaken our authentic selves and step into our spiritual sovereignty. If you'd like a bit more of her story, you can read more at her website, EdenAmadora.com. You'll find an about page there. That's E-D-E-N-A-M-A-D-O-R-A, EdenAmadora.com, all one word. My dear friend Amadora has not seen Rabne Banadi Jodi, which is one of this philosopher's favorite films, but she is at least curious about it, as you all should be. Even though Amadora hasn't seen the film, something tells me her life is a bit like a mythical musical, by which I mean a lot of songs, a lot of music, a musical of mythical resonance and mystical inspiration, we could say. Eden Amadora, welcome to Dangerous Wisdom. Thank you, Nikos. It's an honor to be here. I really love your voice, the resonance of your voice. Well, we philosophers have to be pleasant somehow. We have to find a way. If we're not wise, then we can at least sound nice. That's what we <laughs> And I love the name of your show, Dangerous Wisdom. I, I like this combination of words. It reminds me of this phrase that kept kind of tapping me on the shoulder a couple of years ago. It's the holy rebel. It's like Ooh. dangerous wisdom from the holy rebels. <laughs> yeah, the holy. I like that. The holy rebels. Well, I thought it might be a, a, a nice segue for listeners of mine who haven't heard me speak to a priestess before for me to acknowledge the great history that that entails for me and why I'm so excited that you're here. And I don't know if I, if I shared this with you, but in my lineage, of course, Socrates is a great figure. He's not the first, but we even say there that the other philosophers were pre-Socratics. Then, he, then came Socrates. And he's a unique figure. In fact, uh, the the thing that I want to touch on is part of what it entails or describes is his uniqueness. But in the symposium, there's a dialogue that Plato wrote called the symposium. And that dialogue is about love. And that dialogue gives us our word philosophy. Plato is really the one who put philosophia, love wisdom, together. So... In that dialogue, everyone is, it's a symposium, which means they're all drinking wine and talking. And they're all singing the praises of love. And so that's like an extra layer. Everyone's talking about love. And one of the things that we get from this is our notion of the soulmate. His Aristophanes tells this story about the two souls who are joined together. Then they get separated because the gods are kind of giving us a hard time because we were so powerful when we were with our soulmate. And then we were separated. And uh, he acknowledges that some of them were two, were male spirits that were fused. Some were female that were fused. Some were one of each. 
And uh, so there are other speeches too. And each one gives really nice love lessons. But then comes Socrates. Now, the thing about Socrates is that Socrates famously went around saying, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. I'm not wise. And he would ask people, he would go to like the Jeff Bezos of his time. Like if you were around today, he would say, wow, Jeff Bezos, you're spending billions of dollars on these rockets and you're launching all, you're making all, all this mess, all this pollution and all this money going into, you must really know what you're doing. And you want a trillion people to live in space. You, oh my goodness, you must be so wise. And Jeff Bezos would say, oh yes, yeah, so I know what I'm doing. I'll tell you all about it. And then he'd have a conversation and he would find out Jeff Bezos didn't know what he's talking about. And so, but he never said he knew anything except in the symposium and everyone's sitting around and say, okay, well, Socrates, you have to give your speech on love. And he said, well, I know this is going to surprise everybody, but uh, there's one thing I know a little bit about and it's love. And so, oh my gosh, Socrates says he knows something. This is, everyone stopped the presses. And how did he find out? Well, he was initiated into the mysteries of love by Diotima, a priestess from Mantinea. And there's so many details in this dialogue that I, 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 on the one hand, would say everybody, oh, please go read it. But on the other hand, no, you really need someone to help you think through it. Because even the details, the fact, like you might not know, that he mentions this priestess, Diotima, and she's from a part of Greece that is really associated with the peoples who would have been indigenous. So it's like a really ancient place that he's pointing toward that she would have been from. And it's just profound that Socrates, who didn't know anything, was initiated into something by a woman, by a priestess. So there's this old relationship then for me. And then when I, I just like randomly came across Eden's work and it felt this kind of archetypal a spark because not only is she a priestess, but her special area is love, which I hope I'll invite you to talk about. But anyway, that's the general framing. So for me, this is like me saying to my ancestor, Socrates, I am here. I've come. You're ready. You're ready to be initiated deeper I into the am. heart of love. Indeed. <laughs> wow. Well, that's a beautiful story. And it makes me want to go find that that reading and deepen with it. Diotima. Diotima. I, I heard that Socrates also partook of the Eleusian mysteries and the elixirs that the priestesses would serve, the people that were courageous enough to quote, quote, die before they die. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Plato said love, love wisdom is training for death. And so, oh, and I'll just add too that he was trying to tell us that the path of love is the path. And in a way, Plato was setting up love wisdom philosophy as a mystical initiation. He wanted people to, he was trying to correct, you know, just like the Catholic Church, right? It might have nice things in it, but then there's lots of, you know, it gets kind of crazy or whatever. And so the mysteries, I think Plato thought that they had gotten a little bit like, okay, it's an important experience. He went through it, Socrates did, as you said, but then maybe it wasn't really helping the culture. Like there was this feeling something was wrong. And of course, this culture kills Socrates, who's trying to help them, just trying to help them be better people, and they kill him for it. So Plato was saying, come on, we're all going through the mysteries. It's not working, friends. So we need to rethink this. And he wanted to try to kind of have something that would be like that. It's an initiation, and it is a die before you die. That's what he wanted. But at the same time, it was he was trying to bring something fresh to it that, that he learned from Socrates. And I guess maybe Diotima's in there too. Yeah. Yeah. I love that this path of love wisdom in a way is the path of 
a sort of death, a death of illusion, a death of the importance of the, the overly identified mind. Because, because love, you know, in English, we're so limited. We have this word that's supposed to cover all these different kinds of love. And you probably know far better than I do that in ancient Greek language, there were many, many, many words for love. I, I only really know three right off the top of my head, which is the philo, like you say, philosophy, which is a deep, deep affection and friendship, the eros of passion and desire, and then the agape, the divine love. Yeah. And so we're limited in English with this very romanticized idea around love. And, you know, we're imprinted and conditioned from the beginning of our lives with Disney and pop culture, pop songs that would have us believe that love is kind of this fantasy, codependent, enmeshment, romantic, relational dance when it's so much faster than that. In fact, in the 13 Moon Mystery School, we say love is the only reality and only love is real. Because as you start to really break things down, as in many wisdom teachings, you come into simpler and simpler forms of frequency. And then you're left with these kind of, I I like the yogic term cities, S-I-D-D-H-I-S. It's like superpowers. And all of these words, they contain such a high frequency, like grace, (laughs) love, being, like these big words that in a way are all synonymous freedom and that's the death of the the little self the the mind that grips and wants to be seen as all important so as we as we die to those attachments we enter into the the great adventure and that's for me about surrendering into the mystery of love Mm. that's very nicely put yeah surrendering into the mystery of love now we're in, uh, it's interesting because we sort of, I don't know when this will come out, but we're recording this in the first week of uh, of this kind of weird new year. But then there are other calendars, of course, in one way, maybe the new year is the equinox. That's why the astrological chart has Aries being the first sign. But many cultures also honor the lunar cycle. And a lot, and uh, people might not think of that, that if you don't have weird months and you take seven and divide it (laughs) into the year and you figure it out how many months would you have you wouldn't have 12 would you right well that's why it's the 13 moon mystery school because if we were in harmony with moon cycles we would have 13 months which is based on the word moon yeah and when they when they kind of reconfigured the calendar and it has a lot to do with time is work and time is money and the Gregorian calendar. And then they keep fiddling with it. And poor February gets all like jostled around. <laughs> so yeah, we are, we are in a strange kind of template and we have been for so long, this kind of marching in boxes and punching clocks. And I love that the, um, the mystics and the Mayans would, would say uh, time is art. There's Kairos, that is like soul time, rather than this Saturnian Kronos, which is, you know, dot your I's and cross your T's and bring it down into the material world and make it matter. And there's a certain heaviness to this, this imprinting 
yeah. Yeah, and of course those are those are Greek words too, kairos, chronos, and you have not only the work week, but these uh, emperors stealing days from each other or whatever, right? I'm sure that I think I remember that somewhere from history, right? You know, like so Augustus doesn't want uh, Julius's months to be longer than his, so hey, mine will be even longer. So there's just the craziness of we we think we can be so capricious and divorced from patterns that are larger than us and that we need to be larger than we are and that we, with which we should attune. Oh, <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. And this brings us back to love and more of this, what I like to call um, the the feminine flow. That is, it is really that path of surrender. And ultimately, one of the things that I often get asked about is why are you attracted to the divine feminine mysteries? And what is, what is the genderification of the divine even about? Like, why, why do we talk about it as feminine or masculine? And I think because our world has been so conditioned by this more yang competitive push, push, go drive work, consciousness rather than time is art and love and flow (laughs) that it's it's really about the great balancing it's a time of of looking like how we've swung so far out of balance and harmony here which is reflected in just a myriad of ways in the way we treat nature and each other and the children and earth so for me it is about harmony And my name being Eden carries such a a reminder, such a vibration of this kind of ideal of harmony and balance and Edenic consciousness, which would be to return to actually seeing paradise, seeing heaven on earth, recognizing it by that heart-centered awareness rather than that grip of the what am I going to get from this place? How do I use this (laughs) material world to you know, elevate my own ego and importance like Jeff Bezos and his, uh, excuse my language, cock-shaped spaceship. So we're really having these metaphors and symbols like so blaringly, blaringly obvious right now at this great turning, this time we are in, how important this balancing is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, there is... um... So as a side note for anybody who's curious uh, from a philosophical standpoint, there is a blog post on the Dangerous Wisdom site about Sophia as a feminine image for the non-dual reality. And then this argument, why should it be a feminine image? Why do we need Sophia? And so there's there are two. One is who is Sophia and why Sophia? Why would we want a feminine? And some of the thoughts are... And I just want to acknowledge that this is an old problem too, because Lao Tzu... The who wrote Tao Te Ching, which is famous book that everybody's read. You can notice he's emphasizing the yin even the, way back then. That's twenty five hundred years ago. And um, Plato, uh, in another dialogue, was saying, "Look, we're not going to have a, a real healthy society until women can be rulers." He's not saying that they should be the only rulers, but there has to be that possibility. And they and we we do need sometimes women to be leaders too. Um, so this is this is an old thing. There's a recognition that we have a, a challenge here that we haven't gotten past. And then you have a difficulty where, you know, I think, I don't know what, what anybody else thought, but it, 
I don't think that, uh, say, Hillary Clinton was uh, that feminine presence as much as she was uh, a co-opted face of mm -hmm. the ordinary presence we have, just like I think ultimately yeah. Obama was. Like, we'll, we'll take the form, but really what's behind it is everything yeah. else you've been used to. I so agree with you. I have a very energetic way of seeing, and I was traveling one day during the, the debates between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and they were all televised in the airports. And I don't watch television usually, but it was just everywhere I looked, every restaurant bar was just blaring out into the collective. And I noticed that it looked like energetically such a similar frequency, very, very, very similar, just these two talking heads with this competitive energy and I could just feel like wow this this is actually not the feminine and even in the me too movement with the women's march with all the pink hats there was a poster of wonder woman punching donald trump's face in cartoon form and her body was so masculine it was like a bodybuilder ripped muscular wonder woman in this act of violence and domination and it just struck me as so ironic that the women marching for equality for their rights are actually promoting this equality in a way of being the man not the power of the true feminine that softness that compassion that unconditional love like the divine mother's presence the forgiveness that's possible the wisdom that comes from the depth of the the womb and the heart rather than the the mind that's going to beat you in the debate because i'm even more intellectual and rational and academic than you so this, yeah, this symbol of the women becoming the man and competing against the man and calling it like women's empowerment, I feel like this energy is needing to arise in all of us and balance in all of all of us, whether we have a male or female body, really honoring that that surrendered receptivity, that deeper kind of well of listening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of that you're evoking there. It's funny because one of the I remember a study a long time ago that there was a study with patients who had a language aphasia. They could speak, but they couldn't understand spoken language. And they were uh, researchers walked into the waiting room. They were watching a presidential debate. And everybody was laughing. They said, "What are you laughing about?" Because they didn't understand what they were saying. Well, we don't know what, he, what they're saying, but they're just lying. Both of them are lying. <laughs> they, they don't believe what they're saying. So they, they could sense it. So you, I think what you were registering is something that, yeah, if we, if we could pull away a veil or stop our assumptions, we, more people could be sensitive to. And it's interesting, too, that even that male thing is obviously a caricature because in indigenous cultures where they have real debate here on Turtle Island, you know, when they're the ones who had democracy here. They, you, you couldn't, uh, masculinity was not the, you had to give people reasons. You, 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 because you weren't allowed to force anybody to do anything. And so you would have to try to appeal to them in body and soul and heart and mind at the same time and find ways to arrive at real agreement. And the women were participants in this. I mean, that's one of the reasons why, like, if you were a woman back then, there was basically no question. We have, you know, like even a letter from Ben Franklin. 
acknowledging that if a child, for whatever reason, you know, could be anything, or maybe you got even lost in the woods, or for whatever reason you ended up with an indigenous tribe, and you were there for some period of time, if you had a chance to come back to the dominant culture, none of them ever would. Even if they had money, if they had, you know, place, uh, uh, you know, to, to go to, and people wanted them, their families asking them, and they're saying, I, I'm not going back. And on the other side, if an indigenous person ended up in, in, in dominant culture for any period of time, they, as soon as they could, they'd leave. And in particular, uh, there must have been a pretty significant difference for women, but there was also no, there wasn't the hierarchy. So even this maleness was like, you know, weird. <laughs> and it's been that way for hundreds of years. Socrates saw the same thing. Thousands of years. Yeah. yeah. Oh, right. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. long. Yeah. Mm. It's really interesting. It is a very hot and maybe if this is dangerous wisdom, we can go there. I was going to say it's a hot and edgy topic to talk about something that I'm noticing. I have a, a teenage son and most of his friends are trying to kind of figure out gender. It's really, really different than it was when we were teenagers. This generation is questioning all of these values and beliefs. There's a lot of confusion and there's a lot of challenge also just in feeling like they know how to be and who they are. And very, very different. It's, it is very, and it is interesting too, because the the culture doesn't provide us with vitalizing ways to fulfill our meaning and purpose, and sometimes, like, we can't even get that far, right? So we're, we're stuck trying to, like, we can sometimes put a lot of energy into resolving identity issues that just if the cultural context were different, they wouldn't, they wouldn't arise the same way. Oh. So it is really sensitive. I love that in indigenous cultures, I've heard in many Native American tribes, the the beings that were more androgynous, they called them two spirits. They were often the shamans of the tribe and they had this way of flowing in their seeing and their ability to understand and have compassion and to serve and counsel the other tribal members. And um, one of my, my son's dear friends is in a transition appears very very masculine and feels very very feminine inside and my question is where is the sacred androgyne in collective consciousness can we amplify that awareness in the youth that you can be both you don't have to decide you can actually honor these energies that make up the entire manifest universe the yin and the yang as you were saying that are in all of us and really dance and whatever serves in the moment in your expression of that. And isn't that love? Isn't that freedom just to see yourself as, as so fluid and both? Yeah. Now, do you, I, I, here's a question that's quite obvious. I was talking about Socrates being in relationship with a, a priestess and so that we can i think a lot there might be this sense if someone hears the word priestess i guess since we don't have too many female clergy who would go by that designation they they there would be maybe a pagan what we were saying now pagan association that might, or like eastern like indian uh, right, temple priestesses the, uh-huh. yeah yeah 
Oh, because they, yeah, they would have been in Greek too, temple priestesses yeah. or prophetesses, mm-hmm. um, Celtic. Oracle, oracles, oracles, Delphi, Egyptian, yeah. Egyptian priestesses, Apathor and Isis. Well, Diotima was, um, I mean, he, he, there was a mention that she was a, she made a prophecy and there, I don't know, there might be a play. See, this again shows the detail. She's, um, uh, Mantinike. Uh, so, so if you if she were if she were a, so mantis is the word for prophet, but if, but they were you also it was like Plato was making a play on words um, by saying that she was a, a woman who was from Mantinea, but she but a mantic woman would also be <laughs> she would be a, a a prophet prophet prophetess a seer. Um, and that she was also the Nike, which is where my name comes from. There was also a play on there that maybe she was the prophetess of victory. Mm-hmm. And that because the Mantineans had fought with the Athenians against uh, Sparta, I think. So, so there's like a lot of play on words there. But anyway, where my question is that what, tell, what does that mean now? So you're a priestess yeah, and people. I know I had the same the question 13 years ago. I personally had been attracted to Eastern mysticism and yoga since I was like a preteen. And then I was drawn to shamanic studies in my late twenties and never knew that this path was coming. And when I found the 13 moon mystery school 13 years ago, I had that same question when I met a woman that had seen me perform. I'm also a singer, songwriter, performing artist and recording artist. And she and her husband came up to me after the show. And she said, you are a priestess. You are transmitting divine feminine wisdom through your lyrics and your transmission is a full chakra experience. And I'm like, what? Like priestess. I, I guess I knew about it through, you know, books and myths of what we've just talked about, like temple, temple times of old ancient cultures. And she said, I am an ordained priestess of the 13 moon mystery school. And this is a lineage that's been brought back through, through direct remembrance, through channeling. And she introduced me to my now mentor, Arielle Spilsbury, who's in her late seventies, who wrote the 13 moon Oracle and the Mayan Oracle. And in my very first meeting with Arielle, I had an experience of something called empty presence, which is very similar to a tantric practice of sitting in open eyed meditation together and dissolving parting the veils, we can call it, between this kind of 3D reality and other layers of awareness where you start to see, you start to activate your inner vision, your eye that sees beyond the veil of this apparent dense, solid physical realm. And I was shown many things and remembered many things in that sitting with her. And it would be akin to someone who takes like ayahuasca and goes on an astral journey and has a a DMT type experience without any plant medicine required, just through love, a really high frequency, unconditionally coherent space and this empty presence practice which revealed everything that was kind of in the way of 
receiving this pure frequency of love. And in that sense, it started to create an inner alchemy, a lot of energy, a lot of sweat and feelings were occurring in my body in that time. And then the opening and the tears and the alchemical reaction of salutio or salve e coagula, dissolve to reform. And as I sat in that first meeting with her, I recognized that this isn't my first rodeo. Basically, we find each other and we find this path again and again. And there's layers of remembrance that are within our etheric templates. Some people in the East in yoga would call it your samskaric imprints. We have record and memory we bring with us. It is beyond even our like ancestral epigenetic DNA material. This is soul material that returns. And there's no scientific logical explanation why I start having massive amounts of recall and lucid dreams and not even sleeping dreams in these open eye meditations where there's visions of other temple lives and experiences that are like watching a movie that return to me. So what is it to be a priestess? To be a priestess is to remember. It is to actually step consciously on the path of remembrance and to lift the lamp in the times we're in with this remembrance of only love is real for me in this lineage, I was, I was thinking about how in Hollywood movies, they sometimes depict these like powerful priestesses that seem really concerned with like being on the side of the King so that he's the most powerful being. And they depict them like, you know, kind of these witchy, um, nothing against all my witchy friends who are beautiful humans. But when I say it like this, it's like there's this distortion through that toxic yang energy again, where magic is used for power and earthly gain. And it's, it's not so much about love and awakening and wisdom. And in the lineage I'm in, that is the foundation. It is really about being an embodiment of love and holding the mirror for others to recognize who they are again in, in their essence and see, see through your, your loving gaze, that which is possible for them to remember. That's a very resonant. There's some very resonant notions there where Plato again, Socrates in dialogues that Plato wrote talks about remembering. He didn't believe that we learn anything. He believed that we remember things that the soul knows. And that's, that's really anything. And, um, so like even geometry, you know, and that's famously, he has this, unfortunately, the Greeks had slaves. And, uh, so it was not an American invention. It was just an invention here to make it uh, so apparently overtly racial, although even here it wasn't originally. But um, so he has the slave boy uh, do a geometrical proof, essentially, and he guides him just by asking questions. And the, the boy is able to do it. So he's unlettered. He's, he doesn't he doesn't have any education. And Socrates is saying, well, how do you think he, he knew this? And it's funny, some psychologists later t- 
duplicated that and proved that you can, you can teach somebody something just by asking the kinds of questions Socrates asked, and that the, the person will also tend to make the sorts of potential mistakes that, that happened in the dialogue. So Plato was very perceptive. But then there's also Buddha, of course, who under the tree remembers his past lives. He remembers all of them, and he gives us this aspect of the Eightfold Path and this foundational practice of mindfulness. And the four foundations or four establishments of mindfulness he offers as a direct path to enlightenment. The word mindfulness is sati, and sati has a connotation of remembering. Now, I'm not trying to make an exact equivalent there, Buddha remembering his past lives, but there is this idea that somehow we're forgetting all the time what we're supposed to be doing, and that we need some kind of practice to remember why we're here and to remember what we are, because we already are what we are. We're not, we, we're reality right. now. So I think that's really lovely. And of course, probably many traditions probably have notions like this. Of, I mean, many, you know, but um, it's interesting. I'm so, so now, resonating. I'm resonating with, with what you just said about we, we are who we are. There's only, you know, awakening from the sleep of forgetting and the dream of materialism basically, if we put it in a nutshell, because if we recognize the vastness of our, our infinite divine essence, it's like, there's not as much motivation to work for the man and keep our nose down to the grindstone. Right. Well, Um, that's why the culture has to keep people away from these sorts of ideas. I always say education in America, this thing we call America exists to protect citizens from philosophy. Yeah. protect them which i and that's what we're talking about you can i mean you yeah. you have a different path but it's still philosophy it's how we're yeah. supposed to live our life yeah. we have a deep deep connection with sophia and we work with her myth and right now i'm actually remembering a myth about Ik- icarus no not icarus is it the son of daedalus that he makes the wings for icarus, icarus yeah yeah i'm icarus confusing with, it with the songs the yeah. <laughs> yeah okay So in the myth of um, Icarus, Daedalus makes him this beautiful, like he's a master craftsman and he's trapped on this island with this, this demigoddess, witch, the, not the good priestess kind, the very like power hungry controlling kind. And she just wants to keep him and use him for her own whims. And he doesn't want his son to suffer under her her control. So he creates these beautiful big wings for his son. And he says, my son, do not fly too high. And we all know this myth. We know this part of the myth because the heat of the sun will melt the wax and the feathers will fall out and you'll plummet to your death in the ocean. The myth, the part of the myth that we don't know because they've, they've altered it to keep our nose to the grindstone and dare we get too high and too enlightened. The second half was my son, do not fly too low for the spray of the water will weight the feathers and you will also plummet to your death in the ocean. And that part of the myth didn't serve the the masses and like the industrial revolution. (laughs) We were denied the full myth, which is, I guess, about the middle way, you know, ultimately it is the middle path. And yeah. Nicely put. Yeah, absolutely. I remember that story and uh, yeah, you got to get the whole story. That's wonderful. Thank you for, for that. Middle way, yeah. too. I like the way you did. we stay in the spaciousness of the sky, you know, and in the non duality, not the yeah. illusory absolute, not the illusory relative, but the non duality in the sky. Yeah. 
And really going cool. back to what you said earlier about Sophia being a symbol of the non-dual as the feminine, as like maybe even this void, this void space, we we know her as um Ein Sofur in like ancient Aramaic, it's the limitless, limitless light. And often there's these interesting paradoxes and wisdom teachings and mysteries because we also work with the light being solar logos, more of this, this masculine energy, the light of the sun. And most humans kind of have personified the sun as a he, as this, you know, Christos, the sun, the sun god, the son of God, and Horus and Ra and all these like very masculine deities. And then there's Sophia that's limitless, limitless light, this light of Sophia that embeds herself in matter. And there's a dream I was given by spirit in the beginning of my mystery school training that I'd love to share because I didn't know much about the myth of Sophia 13 years ago in the beginning of this journey. And I was gifted a dream where the name Amadora came from. And in in my dream, I am a woodworker, an artisan, and a priestess. This being said, we don't use tools. We don't use sharp objects to carve anything out of wood. We have the ability in this dimension, in this dream epoch, wherever, wherever we are, to surround the wood together with our our love, our prayers, our hands, our sound, and to vision into the wood to scry and to see and pull what we see out of form into a different form. So we create these beautiful goddess statues and figurines carved perfectly and without carving with our hands, just through the seeing and time goes on. One day, this giant tree that's fallen naturally from like a storm is wheeled in on many, many little logs. It's a massive Oak And we surround the tree and we're just in like reverent awe and we invoke the elements and we make our sacred sound and we begin to scry. And this one massive deity, this beautiful goddess emerges. We we place her upright vertical in the main giant hall of our temple. And we honor her with pots of honey and beeswax candles and crystals and flowers and whatever fruits we can give. And we call her Ama, which is like mother in this knowing in this dream. And this was a, this was a mythic lucid dream. It went on and on and on. So bear with me in the dream. Everything is harmonious and peaceful. And we have this beautiful balance with the natural world, honoring the elements, honoring mother, all is sweet, all is good and plenty for a long time. And then they come, who are they? Why do they do these things? There's fire, there's smoke, there's screams, there's terror, there's horror, there's war. And they come and desecrate the temple and knock over Ama, carve out her eyes, her breasts, her yoni. And in the dream, I am, I am distraught and I pledge to restore her and I'm kneeling and putting my hands on her and invoking the elements and crying into her and praying over her. And there is a rumbling and 
shaking, trembling like an earthquake. And the next thing I know, she is shaking and I am shaking. And then we merge and I am absorbed into the wood as my knowing myself as a separate priestess. I am she. I rise up and out of the wood as a giant 20 foot tall or so Davic being and emerge from the wood completely and fly over the land and see all the destruction and the the violence and the pain and the sorrow. And I sing and I cry tears of mercy, compassion and love. And by and by the land restores and peace returns. And I mean, this is this is a, a cycle, a myth. I've seen it since I was a little kid. Do you remember Fantasia when spring is like this? This came back in this dream 13 years ago. And I am know myself as the goddess Amadora, she who loves the beloved. This this healing and restoring of the land is my holy mission and the beings in the land. And when it is complete, I merge with the trees to sleep and dream in the woods until they come again. It's a cycle. And now they're cutting down the trees to make battering rams and forges for weapons of war. And it is not safe for me to hide in the trees. I dive into the depths of the lake and bury myself in the 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 silty bottom to restore and nourish and gain strength to come back and heal the land again, to do the same cycle over and over until one time I emerge from a very, very deep lock because the last round was so exhausting. I had to find like the deepest high mountain lock that maybe like a Loch Ness monster would live near me. And I come out of this lock in the high mountains and it is a different time on earth than anything I've ever experienced. There are strange weapons of war that aren't even visible. There's frequencies. There are things that are in people's hands that make them look like dead walking there there's noise in the ocean there is so much pollution so much dirtiness everywhere and the people have forgotten to pray they have forgotten the elements they have forgotten to honor mother and i don't have the strength even that deepest lock was not strong enough mana life force for me to to move the needle, so to speak, to make any real improvement in the frequency of density. And this war is a different kind of war. And the damage is such a different kind of damage. And my heart breaks. So I dive into the bottom of the ocean thinking maybe, maybe the ocean has enough chi, mana, presence to restore me enough to, to do something. And as I lay on the bottom of the ocean, I can sense this like sound and frequency dissonance and the acidity and this feeling of there is not enough mana. There's not enough juice here. And I have to renounce this world. There's nothing to do. And as soon as I make that choice to let go, to die 
and to let go of Gaia, to let go of humanity, to let go of this cycle of fighting, striving to combat those forces. As soon as I start to do that, I start to dissolve into the ocean floor. My physical form, this David goddess body starts to dissolve. And then in the center of my heart, something detonates like a big defibrillation, like, like this kind of jolt. And I, and it's like instant gnosis and I know what's required and I blast straight up out of the ocean. Don't even look, don't do the fly around straight out of this atmosphere, the stratosphere and straight towards the sun. And as I near the sun, I know that I'll be completely annihilated and dissolve into the radiation of his heat and light and power And there's no fear. And I just keep going. And as my form dissolves, I still am moving in consciousness deeper and deeper into the center of the sun. And in the center of the sun, I am no longer she. And I am not a he. I am just an I am. And there is a recoherence of a form that is a star tetrahedron, a crystalline star tetrahedron that shoots out of the heart of the sun and plummets back in Gaia. I wake up. I remember the dream in its entirety. And I hear when we are balanced in our primordial feminine, feminine and our solar masculine energy, we will know peace and we will know love and we will know harmony here. That is quite, I mean, Jung is dying to be reincarnated right now in my body to talk to you about that. (laughs) That's a doozy. There are so many myths in one dream. Myths I knew not with my intellect before Uh that dream. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, of course, but that's Jung's idea is the, the, what we could call, sometimes people say the objective psyche is his main discovery that the psyche has this this knowing that's independent of us and that's why we're able to access these things and um yeah and who knows how far he went with it of course i mean sometimes i think he was you know look he's still from the dominant culture other times you know he really seems open but that's uh that's a really quite an amazing dream i had this image for a moment of the um the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara because of the fact that he's the Bodhisattva of compassion and he had made a vow to save all sentient beings and at some point because people say you know why why does Avalokiteshvara have that that form of having a thousand or sometimes some images it's ten thousand hands and eyes and uh, well he was at, at a certain moment became overwhelmed with all the suffering and he thought i don't think i can do it and then since he had made this cosmic level vow he started to break into like a thousand or ten thousand pieces and as he broke apart he said no like it can happen it it will happen i will do it and then he came back together but those pieces were they stayed there you know (laughs) that's why he has all the pieces 
So it's, I was thinking of that I really liked so much, though. I mean, this is like, that would take us, we're going to need a whole other dialogue to unpack that dream. To be, to be continued, I'll just yeah. say that it's really, really interesting that it happened during this time, 12 and a half, 13 years ago, where the comet Hale-Bopp was traveling through our solar system. We were yeah. able to see that. And that was somewhere in some little bit of my psyche and I became this like comet in the dream Uh so who knows just even astrologically these cosmic forces and how they affect our collective consciousness what was gifted to me in that moment because of that comment that comment Mm -hmm. in our yeah yeah, you sort of, right now, for those of you listening at home who can't see the video, because I don't have one, um, uh, you sort of have the Avalokitesvara pose as well. She Because she sits, he or she, and that's also interesting because there's both, right? Mm-hmm. It's both beings. But uh, famously, because Avalokitesvara doesn't, wants to be so responsive, then he, she doesn't sit in a lotus position or any kind of seated meditation, but sits with like the one leg up and one leg down and, and sort of also listens to the cries of the world because the name means something like that. The one who looks down on or the hears. one who hears the cries of the yes, world. Yeah. Exactly. Quan, yeah. Quan Yin is my, um, one of my primary archetypal frequencies that I am. I say sometimes like she's my co-pilot or I'm her co-pilot. <laughs> That's, that's wonderful. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. So yes, that's a wow, that's a very powerful and also I'll just say too to my lineage uh residents there that it reminds me of Arisicthon, who uh he was a king who and it's funny too because this story I think Ovid tells this story. And I was thinking that Ovid would be so jealous of your dream because, you know, you wonder where Ovid came up with all these metamorphoses and you're seeing all these metamorphoses. But Arisicthon was a Greek uh, king who wanted to cut down trees and there was a, a grove that was sacred to the goddess and and then there was a central tree. And you might know this, but I'm just reviewing it to people. There was a, a main tree, a beautiful, big, 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 big old oak and it had all these garlands and gifts that people brought in response to their prayers having been answered. So they brought, they were honoring, and it, so it was clearly a very sacred place, and the people, the, the, his workers said, we're not cutting that tree down. He said, oh, really? And he grabs an axe, first of all, knocks one of their heads right off, and then he says, I'll cut it down. So he swings the axe into this tree, and it starts bleeding. And the deity there calls to Demeter and says, avenge me, avenge this crime, this terrible crime. And so because he was seeing the trees as a pile of money and had lost a sense of reality, um, and then, of course, you guys can look it up, and it's a tragic end. Well, I'll just say, he ends up eating his own child. (laughs) And that's what we're doing. We're eating our children's future. We're eating our own children. Thich Han tells a story about that too, about this, 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 this couple who faces this terrible thing, are we going to eat our own children? Mm-hmm. And that's what we're doing. But I also thought of that, this, this, the way you represented her as being in the trees, in the forest, and these are beings that we don't, we don't understand that we've lost our connection to them. We don't even, we don't, you know, we're just, they really are objects almost in a way. 
when time is money yeah. we lose our sense of reality yeah yeah trees are money time is money you and the piles of money our attention that's the thing that the myst the mystical invisible thing awareness itself attention is now a commodity that's quite an accomplishment when you commodify att attention and that also is very Socratic because Socrates thought we were here to attend, to care for the world. And that's, there's, yeah. that's a Sophia story too, right? To be Sophia Cora. Yeah. yeah. Sophia as the, as care. Sophia Cora. That care created the world. Yeah. And, yeah. Wow. That's really powerful stuff. And so that's where you, because of that, then you took the, we could say like a spiritual name or, yeah, you know, this is common in so, many traditions. At first, I did not know what to do with the stream. I uh -huh. wrote it down. It was so it was millennia long and uh -huh. so just detailed that I was in awe that I could remember the whole thing. So I I did scribe it. And then I shared it at my next 13 moon circle when I was a beginning initiate with the other priestesses and they spoke into it. We do something called dream speak and we hold the dream in this very respectful way by saying, if it were my dream, I would be curious about da, 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 whatever part. And we would look at it together and the women one by one started offering me all of these myths that were embedded from the myth of Sophia to the lady of the lake. And yeah, even this um, star seed idea that is now kind of in collective consciousness. And this, you know, 12 and a half, 13 years ago, wasn't as prevalent hearing beings resonate or relate to themselves as star seeds more than just souls they're from other potential stars so that was fascinating too this star tetrahedron crystalline compact um thing that i became that shot back to earth so the name then haunted me amadora and i looked it up and there is an Amadora, Portugal, as a, a city and a place, and it, it means the beloved or she who loves or the lover in Latin. And I decided to use it as an artist's name for a performance project where I had been writing music. I was in a partnership at that time. I wrote music where I was allowing myself to open to the different archetypes of the goddess and sing through her frequencies. So my first album, Dream Awake, has songs from, I think, the first seven archetypes that we, we work with out of 13. And during that time, I it was really interesting. I was kind of gifted this giant feathered headdress to prayer form in at you know, visionary art festivals. And at first I put the thing on and thought, oh, no, no. You know, my small ego was like, that's just way too like some Valkyrie goddess or something. And um, it was interesting because the impression of that kind of iconic imagery would have people write me and say, you know, this is the return of the bird tribes, these kind of myths of this time we're in and the message of another star system that's known as the Pleiades. And when I did some research about um, beliefs around earth and her different 
epochs, different times, different cycles, you know, far, far earlier than the history we know. There were times that there were supposedly other star beings here forming reality as we know it, that there was less density. And there's something called the Polarian Epoch, where we were literally singing matter into form. (laughs) So I didn't know anything about this when I had the dream either. So this name, Amadora, just continued to guide me. And it's been with me as an artist. And then after sharing the dream with my mentor, who I mentioned earlier, she asked me if she could call me into that frequency, that when you're called a name, that it actually calls you into it. And I'd been going by Eden for the first year of my training. And she said in in high ceremony, in the most kind of, um, she was holding a very small circle called the Mysterium for more advanced priestesses. And she invited me and she, she called me Amadora in that experience and I noticed how it like really invoked like that full archetypal mythic presence to come through and to embody it more so it is now part of my name I use in the world I haven't stepped into the full moniker (laughs) it's like (laughs) you know there's still a little wow okay (laughs) a one name kind of thing so I'm, I'm still honoring Eden it has a good story, good myth, good resonance around it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that, that, and that's uh, as I was saying was fairly common. I think people don't always. Uh, there's maybe increasing experience with that because uh, it's in the popular culture now. But we have the Buddhist tradition; we get renamed, and many other traditions also we get renamed. Uh, even Plato is not his name. His name was uh, Aristocles. Um, I, I don't know that it was an initiation name. It means broad. Uh, I'm, I'm not a huge guy, but I always was. Uh, everybody else said, God, your shoulders are so wide. I said, yeah, that's Plato. But I, it, I don't think he was literally broad. I think they meant broad mind. But there's no clarification. He's just called Plato. I don't, I, I don't know who gave that, that name, but... Um, it's a it's this important thing, right? Where we there's some sense of having to let go of of all the stuff we charged into an old name, uh, such that you know people. I think of Sister True Emptiness, who was one of Thich Nhat Hanh's uh, nuns. I mean, I, I don't know what her name is. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, she's been Sister True Emptiness since they were in the Vietnam War together, practicing love in the midst of being shot at and and uh, having people they cared about killed and. So this practice of love is a deep one. It can be really challenging. So how then as a priestess now, I don't know all the things that priestesses did in Socrates' time. Apparently, DOT must said, I'll just, I can give you teachings. And so I, I imagine, is that one of the things that you do? You offer teachings to people from within this uh, lineage that you're, you've been practicing in for now 13 years? Yeah, it's interesting because I don't often even call them teachings or use that expression as being a teacher. I I use the expression Mm -hmm. that I'm a focalizer of coherent space. 
So I create a, a really That's a resonant. Beautiful, though. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm a focalizer. Yeah, I uh, I create very resonant, coherent, beauty-filled ceremonial spaces where women are held for a full day-long ritualized embodied experience of the different archetypes. Mm -hmm. So they come through a gateway experience to even get into the temple where they're asked to really let go and release and surrender the mind before they enter into the sacred innermost chamber of the temple. And I have prepared it with so much mindfulness, heartfulness, love with everything about the field resonating in archetypal frequencies. So the color, it's usually one, like the great mother temple is the first temple that we go into to be initiated into surrender. And it's red. It's like deep burgundy red. It's it's representing the the root and the the root chakra, the womb, the blood mysteries. So the whole field, every altar is draped in red cloth. The floor is red. Women all wear red, all red roses in the field. And then the iconography, the images on the art, the the altar items are all representing this archetypal frequency. So her animal totems, her sacred oils, her sacred geometry of the Fibonacci spiral that's reflected in the wisdom of nature and the galactic spiral in the conch shell and the sunflower. Everything about that day, everything about that field, everything about the practices, the embodiment practices are to give the women a direct embodied experience of the archetypal energy rather than me sitting and teaching them as a talking head with something that's been written by someone else. I am transmitting from direct gnosis from the lens of I am she, I am the great mother. I will offer the poetry that flows through my heart. I will offer the sounds, the songs, the yogic inner kriyas and hatha yoga practices that embody that frequency and invite them into that. And I am not holding the whole thing myself. I've trained many beings, like several apprentices, to carry pieces of the ritual, to offer an earth-based ritual, to offer a craft, to offer a sacrament, to offer an anointing. So there are many, many practices and direct experiences that the women are given to have this, this communion with the goddess in a very, very loving high frequency space and it's confronting to the mind it is the death of the small mind the small self that clings because if you're entering in with the primary foundation is surrender then perfectionism control needing to tell your story from the sense of the past and everything that makes you a victim and poor you All of that gets cooked with the archetypal energy and alchemized into more presence and more unconditional allowance and self-love. And it's uncomfortable many times for the women as they go through these journeys. It's soul initiation work. There's deep agreements that hold them so that they go the distance because the mind is like, as soon as 
as soon as the ego is challenged around a pattern that it's clinging to or righteous about, the being could want to bolt <laughs> and say, this is not for me. This is uncomfortable. And how dare you mirror something so fully. But truth in this field is so loving. There's so much compassion and so much holding of the holy innocence of each being and reflecting it back to them that most, most of the women go through the alchemy and keep moving through. Mm -hmm. Yes. You say most, I mean, initiation rituals have all, it's always been the case that not everybody's going to go. I I mean, of course, in the old days, there were times and cultures where that would mean you didn't survive, but in these days, it just means I'm going to go, I'm going to go home. This isn't my thing. Go back to your your um, <laughs> cocktails and TV shows and yeah. gossip and small victim stories. You go back and you keep sure. repeating that and blaming well, everyone else for your suffering. Yeah, but well, it's okay this, if a path isn't for somebody. I mean, that can be a wake up yeah. call to them. Yeah, in this work, we're really looking at freedom. We're looking yeah. at how to be um, a lamp lifter and walking in loving serv- service to the awakening of the collective heart of humanity. Yeah. Through our own frequency. Yeah. And this is a thing that is not very present in this culture. I think, and I think that there are other, there are unions who have, I think, said as much. But it seems to me that some of the, if you were to say, oh, why did I get in that terrible relationship? And the answer is, well, why did I take that dumb job? Or how did this thing happen to me? And it might even be, how did I actually end up in jail right now? And I sometimes think that the answer is that your soul was hungry for an initiation and you didn't have any place to do that. And the closest thing it could do was put you in this relationship, which was not really it. And you may not have even learned half the lessons, maybe zero of them. But even if you thought you learned about it, it wasn't really what you needed. And that's why you got into the next relationship. Yeah. But that where we have, uh, I'm trying to remember who was the, uh, one of the uh, theorists about initiation. I mean, this, a lot of this comes from people studying indigenous cultures, but they're they were trying to make the differentiation between the liminal and the liminoid. And so liminal space is what you're creating. And I like that idea of coherence because I talk about that too. David Bohm, the physicist, was I like to talk about how our culture is incoherent and how human beings are incoherent and making that direct analogy with light. You know, the laser light is coherent, yeah. and but we are incoherent and that's what makes us crazy. It's why we do stupid things all the time. There's a part of us that knows, so to speak, and another part, but you know, whatever, let's not get into that. But let's so go the, back to the relationship thing, because I have a piece about that. Do you, do you? Well, I just want to acknowledge one thing for people who are out there. Well, I, I promise to go back, but just because I know that this is a weird we don't have access to this. So what we have instead of a liminal space, which is a true initiatory space, which is a different it's sacred time, sacred space. We, the closest we get is like going to Disneyland or taking a vacation or like we go to Bora Bora. It might be a far from place, but we're, we're in a liminoid space where some of the things that could happen in initiatory experience could happen there, but they're always going to be watered down. You have no context to, to return with them. But this thing that we're constantly trying to make initiation spaces happen and we completely, we don't. And so when people hear about this, 
they don't realize that this is this is old technology, if you want to call it that. The Tibetans still do this. You know, you get initiated, and of course, the guru has is the is the image, right? There, or that you're you're conjuring the these archetypal figures in the process. You enter the mandala, literally, you know, um, and all of this just has a lot of data. I would call it data. Really good, verified. People aren't going through all this stuff because it doesn't do anything, but it can sound really weird. I think. I mean, I can I'm imagine sure. a time in my life where I would have been like, okay, all right. But yeah, I, well, I, I why really are you doing wanna, this again? I, yeah, I really <laughs> yeah. want to acknowledge that there's something missing from the dominant culture that we don't have these experiences and it seems that we need them. And in my own work, I do this with horses. It's the same thing. You have to go through a preparation. But like the Tibetans, I don't mind that there is talking ahead of time. There's study, there's learning. There are things that you have to learn to help to unlearn what the culture is teaching you. So, I mean, I'll just confess I do that and other traditions also. So I, I'm data supported in that. I'm not saying what you're doing isn't right, but um, just that it is, I think it's okay to have a certain amount of teaching training that we do as part of the preparation. But the important thing is that bigger, bigger shifts are going to happen in that initiatory space and it will be one free from ordinary. I, I definitely and, prepare them before they come into temple. I prepare right. them with a lot of information about kind of the agreement field and the ground rules. And right, there's right. a lot of language that's new for people too. I mean, we don't really speak in terms of resonance, coherence, noema, remembrance. Like there's a lot of, you know, phrases that right. will kind of be foreign until it's a direct embodied experience for them. Right. Yeah. Um, so for, so yeah. I prepare, I prepare them. I give them what we call mind food to read as well. So that yeah. the, it's almost like, I think maybe it was Nizar Gardate. He said, that the ego or the the vehicle, the personality needs to be kind of taken care of and prepared enough before a master kind of shatters it. It's almost like that's why he would remind initiates of their divine origins, their noble nature and their glorious destiny before like kind of bringing in this like non-dual sense of awareness because it can be shattering if you don't have a strong enough vessel vehicle to work with, then there could be psychotic breaks, which have happened. I've had a woman, I've had a woman who was um, bipolar, who stopped taking her medication, who was trying to do something more naturopathic. And the archetypal frequency is so powerful. There was a Jungian psychologist. I think her name was Marion Woodman that said, if you compare psychological talk therapy to archetypal ritual frequency wise it's like comparing the quack of a duck to a thunderclap so this these fields are so powerful that kind of thunderclap of of energy of frequency that if the the personality if the person isn't grounded enough in their sense of secure I know who I am enough to know this is a very altering experience that I can withstand, then it's, it's not right for everyone. It's not for people with, with psychological issues that have a hard sense of reality already, whatever we we could go there, like what is real? So um, 
Yeah, I, I interview warning. I interview people deeply mm-hmm. before, yeah, and I also warn them this is not for the faint of heart because it's deep shadow work in the sense of our shadow being that which we've yet to fully embrace into the light of our loving awareness, the subconscious, the wounded child, all these kind of collective conscious imprints too, ancestral wounding, all of this comes up. And in the work, it's held with such love Mm -hmm. and that kind of intense catalytic fire of transmutation. So it isn't comfortable, as I said before. So I'll I'll tell people in their interview, this is not about wearing gorgeous gowns and head head headdresses, like you might have seen some images of me when I was prayer forming. This is this is really deep, deep work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, same thing with meditation in general. We've been finding this out. And of course, uh, I'm sure some people might be aware of that work. I think it's a little bit, the main message for me is that people, I don't know why people think they can just start meditating 10 hours a day or go on a retreat. They've got no preparation. And so I know I respect what be Britain has done some of that work. I think it's great. I also think that there's, the, you know, I remember when she presented to the Dalai Lama about all oh, people are having these negative side effects from meditation, and he was completely unfazed. I watched the video of the conference. He's just looking at her, and, and then, and then the translator said, "He's he, Dalai Lama says, why are, no one told them to meditate? No one would tell them to meditate that much. Where did they get the idea that they should be doing that? You know." And so, yeah, these traditions are very experienced, and we can't. We have to move with a lot of care. Uh, so, yeah, well, I know that we, we were talking about our timing, and I want to give you time before your next uh, engagement or encounter or whatever you're turning toward next. Uh, I, this has been so fascinating, though. I, I had a suspicion I would be hungry for part two. I don't know. Maybe. How do you feel? Would you like I to think that back? would be fun. Oh, I, yeah. I am, like, absolutely lit up by deep, deep philosophical conversation this is where i want to hang out so i'm a big yes well great that's marvelous well eden thank you so much i'm going to say amadora i like that i I like the sound of that it's just amador we have amador county as I, i i know you know that but um yes well so thank you again amadora and thank you for your work in the world i really appreciate it and look forward to speaking with you again my friend Beautiful. Me too. Thank you so much, Nikos. I look forward to it. And thanks to all of you. I'm back with my regular voice. If you made it this far, thanks for spending some time with the philosopher and the priestess. If there are any priestesses out there, this philosopher is always interested in more dialogue with priestesses. If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, reflections, insights, stories of magic and mystery and priestesses and philosophers, please send them in through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.